Welcome to DTC Pod, where we take you behind the wheel with the best founders and operators of consumer brands. You'll learn the ins and outs of business from setting up shop, hitting your first million, scaling past eight figures, and even navigating an exit. As founders ourselves, our goal is to help you learn from the best as you build. Visit us at dtcpod.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter, join our founder community, and find additional resources from every episode. DTC Pod is brought to you by Trend, the creative solution for your brand. Go to trend.io to access thousands of creators for content needs such as product photography, unboxing videos, or even TikTok and IG organic creative. Use the code DTCPOD10 for 10% off your next content purchase. Are you curious how much your business is worth? Get your free no-obligation offer from OpenStore at open.store. This episode of DTC Pod is also brought to you by Peel Insights, the e-commerce analytics platform that supercharges all of your retention efforts every day and with every customer. Go to peelinsights.com slash dtcpod to learn how hundreds of e-commerce brands use Peel to reveal purposeful insights like LTV, AOV, repurchase rate, churn, and hundreds of metrics more. See how brands are nurturing deeper customer relationships with easy-to-use retention tools that hyper-target and provide immediate growth. The subscription market is predicted to grow nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is the leading subscription management solution, helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTCpod. What's up, DTC Pod? Today we're joined by Adam Xavier, who's the president of the Xavier Group. Uh, so, Adam, I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background uh, in the D2C space, some of the projects you're working on, some of the brands that you're currently building, uh, and we can kind of go from there. Great. Yeah. Hi, Blaine. Uh, sure. My uh, my company right now uh, in DTC, we have a brand called Axel, which is women's hair growth and support products. I've been in direct-to-consumer space for going on, I think, six years now. So I've been I've been involved in that through pre, you know pre-pandemic and throughout the pandemic, and now going into the world afterwards. But um, right, so our our product line, like I said, is a it's a, a hair growth product developed specifically for women, and that was from you know we developed that from just my years of experience in not just DTC but in skincare and hair care. So, so yeah, why don't, before that, why don't we go into a little bit about, about your background? I know you've worked as well with launching different product lines as well. So why don't you give us a quick little background and then we'll get into Axel and, and the problem you guys are solving there as well. Sure. Yeah. So I've been in manufacturing for about 18, just over 18 years now. It's hard to believe. Started out in New York with a, uh, a motorcycle security device that, that me and my twin brother invented basically you know we invented this product got patents on it raised some capital from private investors um, in the state of new york and ran that for about six and a half years and that was um you know we had our challenges of that going in 2008 financial crisis and then moved out here to california and got involved with tech as i think most people do going up to san jose and in silicon valley and then 
I was dragged back into manufacturing in a roundabout way. I got involved in some some facial devices like RF, you know, skin toners and red laser tools and things like this. And uh, in a roundabout way, I was approached by uh, Paris Hilton to develop a skincare line for her. Uh, as as most celebrities and and you know uh, influencers with large following uh, follower bases, you know, we're getting into pre-pandemic. So I sat with my lab and my chemist, and we developed a five five or six SKUs for for a line for Paris, and that's also how I got in direct to consumer because that line, you know, we had a, a branded site, but we also had distributors and uh, both domestic and international. Um, so while I was working on that that brand with Paris, we also put together some other product lines um, with some other celebrities, some other influencers that were that were in early stage, and I was also making. Um, some products specifically for my wife for hair loss problems she had. So even though we went from motorcycles to to hair, you know, to skincare to hair care, it's all it's always been involved in manufacturing. I've I've been able to take my experiences from my early days in New York with making hard motorcycle parts out of metal, and uh, use a lot of those contacts, a lot of that networking, you know, the the network I built here and in China and Korea, and get into uh, manufacturing skincare with the packaging coming out of some of the same suppliers I use for my other company. So but it's been, it's been 18 years and it's been navigating through a lot of financial or, uh, you know, economic situations, like I said, 2008, the pandemic and things like this, but it all comes back to, we make widgets, you know, we make, we, we have manufacturing inventory. Yeah, absolutely. And I think those will all be really great topics to go into, especially I know, seems like Paris is early to the game in a lot of different things, but uh, I know like, you know, influencers and celebrities launching their own product lines. That's something that we've been seeing a ton of in the last couple of years. So we'll definitely want to get into, um, you know, what that process is like and unpack that. But before we go there, why don't we go into a little bit, let's start with Axel. Um, so what was the problem that you were seeing? What was, uh, you know, knowing that you wanted to develop this product alongside your wife and solve a real problem, what was, how'd you first go, go about it? How'd you realize there was a problem? And then how did you go about productizing that and taking it to market? Sure. Great questions. So I've been dealing with hair loss from a very early age and uh, it's, it's not a, you know, it's not a new topic for me. What I wasn't aware of was that women experienced that you know, a lot of women that, that go through pregnancy and, and uh, you know, with the hormonal changes and the diet changes and the, the stresses on the body, a lot of women experience postpartum hair loss. I, I had no idea. And, you know, watching my wife go through it when we were having our first son together, I realized that I had the tools at my disposal to develop something to potentially help her. I'm familiar with what's on the market for men because, like I said, I've been using that stuff for 20 years. Um, so I sat with my chemist and we put together, a, a, you know, a few different formulations to, to truly help her, did some research on products available, ingredients. And we, we, built, uh, we built two or three iterations of a formula and it, it actually helped. It, you know, it, her hair came back. It was thicker than before. Um, her recovery time was much uh, faster because she has, you know, she had a, a child before that. So she was used to that, that stretch of time. So we, you know, we kicked around the idea a little bit about you know, what to do with that product because my wife has a background. She's an entrepreneur. She's a, she had a PR firm here in Beverly Hills and, you know, the gears started turning in her head too. She said, 
you know, maybe maybe we should put some branding together around this and get this out because it, it really works. It really helped me. So we did. We, you know, I sat down and I developed a brand for it, put together the packaging. Um, we did some tests with some, you know, some some small groups of uh, friends and contacts of ours and people seemed to like it. So we, we eventually just put together a branded store on Amazon, you know, with no marketing, very little marketing, very little anything really. And it quickly started gaining traction. We got great feedback and it was really surprising to see how that started to kind of develop in its own, in its own way. And, and, uh, about a year into it, you know, we actually launched it towards the end of 2019. So I don't have to tell you what happened in 2020, but you know, we had, we had a, while every, all of our other projects were experiencing some sort of impact from, you know, the pandemic and our other interests and our other concerns, that product line was still gaining, you know? So we started to, to develop it out and build some other products that customers were asking for and just kind of took it from there. Yeah. And Adam, the, the next question that I have about that is when it comes, so the hair, the hair care product or the, you know, hair growth sort of product, it's, it falls within a different sort of category than a lot of other different products. Like obviously motorcycle products, very different, but, um, you know, it maybe falls in that gray area between something that's like maybe pseudo pharmaceutical supplement, right? Like wellness, that sort of space. So as it, as it pertains to like regulation or patents or formulation, was there anything that you guys had to consider when coming up with your own solution or when it came to like testing and using, like what kind of went on behind the scenes from an operational perspective to, to, you know, once you were being able to see results with your wife, like what were all the, the, I guess, what were, what were the things that you guys had to do to make sure you could actually take that product to market and sell it on Amazon? Well, uh, you know, selling here in the U.S. is a little, it's its actually, it's decidedly different than most markets. There's, the restrictions are different. It's not necessarily more difficult or less than selling into, say, the EU or into, you know, China. It's just, it's different. You can take a product to market relatively quickly here, right? Um, considerations, uh, you know, around the ingredients, any, any starting point. So when we put together, you know, this hair, this hair growth product or any of the other follow on SKUs that went into that brand, or even we working with, the with Paris's line and putting together those products with those ingredients. First consideration is always, what are we putting in it? And the way our lab works and the way we work with our chemist is, you know, we have a portfolio of thousands of different ingredients that are supplied by you know, some pretty major suppliers here domestically in France and Spain. And, you know, we sit down and consider first what ingredients we would like for uh, the, you know, a lot of them have clinical trials, right? They have clinical result, um, test results. So we'll put those together. And then, you know, it's considerations on the other, other ingredients you need in the formula to keep it, to, to create some efficacy. Um, you need binders, you need things to hold the formula together. Then you need to test for shelf life, how long a product can stay in, in solution, that kind of thing. Um, and while you're doing that, you also have to consider, you know, the, the say these main ingredients we're using in Axel, can they be sold in China? Because at some point, you know, we would like to sell this product into China or we'd like to sell it to Japan or Korea. So we have to consider every ingredient and where they can and cannot be sold. And then ultimately, uh, for selling in America, we decide 
you know, how we want to approach the marketing, because here these are these are all over the counter. That's not even a good term. These are just ingredients that that are not regulated by the FDA. You don't need a prescription for any of this stuff. It It's like minoxidil originally was a prescription, right? And then it became over the counter. None of this falls into that category. A lot of this comes from plant sources, right? So, you know, we don't, we're, we're mostly looking at how do you want to market it? What kind of claims do you want to make? You have to be careful with that stuff, right? You have to be careful what you can say. So a lot of that comes down to how you, how you're going to market it. And then, you know, there are ultimately some other things you can do. If you want to be an ethical business, you have to say, okay, so we've done our, our homework on the ingredients that we're going to compile these, you know, these formulations with where they can be sold considerations on shelf life. Then you can, you can take that extra step and say, okay, now of the fillers and ingredients we're using, is it vegan? Is it cruelty free? Are these ingredients that are on a watch list that consumers have put together or non-governmental, you know, uh, groups? So, you know, are they clean ingredients and things like this? That all goes into marketing, but it's also an ethical question. We want these products to work, but there is a balance between what, you know, what you use and then how you can talk about it. So as far as going into the, the market here and selling on Amazon, Amazon has their own list of requirements as well. You have to give them safety data sheets on everything, which that's all stuff that when we when we develop our formulas, we run anyway. Um, but when it really comes down to it, it's kind of it's kind of like, you know, you just have to be careful of what you use and how you market it right here in America. But going into countries, one of our interests, you know, country we're very interested in working in with my experience with my other companies is China. Well, they have very they have a very different set of rules. Not necessarily more difficult, but they have different ingredients that they, you know, that they require, uh, you know, going through their version of an FDA, right? This, I believe it's a CFDA or SFDA. I, I don't remember which one it is, but, you know, again, we didn't, we don't want to make it more difficult for ourselves three years from now when we're ready to take our product that's, that's gaining traction in and, you know, brand loyalty here and go into China and say, oh, well, we have to change the formula and all that. So again, it's just from the starting point, we we consider this is what we want to come out in the market with, but how how does this product need to be five years from now when we go into China or Korea, you know, the UK, right? So yeah, I, I think it's, it's super important and insightful because I think maybe if it's your first time around, you're just thinking about like, let me get to market really quickly, but clearly you guys have been in the formulation and space for a while. And you know that it's not just about one market. There's, there's multiple markets that you can eventually reach. So the easier you can make it for you guys down the stream, the, the better it's going to be. Um, the next question I have just to piggyback off that, I don't know. I mean, the answer here could be no, but just out of curiosity, what are there any patents that you can come across? Like, for example, um, I know in the, the example of like minoxidil and hair loss, I think before that there was a patent around, um, uh, what was it? The, the other main ingredient that was like in Propecia and everything. And then when that patent expired, then that's when a bunch of these other companies kind of popped up. And so like, I don't know, is the, in formulation, is patent something that you've come across and what you're able to market the product as while using a specific ingredient or do you have any color you can provide there? Sure. Yeah. And, and like I was saying, from my experience of my first uh, my first venture back in the early 2000s, I went through the process of getting utility patents. And 
you know, the all the office actions of the USPTO and understanding, you know, the different criteria that you need to hit to be able to be granted uh, government protection with a patent. So it's a good question. There, there are ingredients that are sp specific ingredients that have patents and we use some of them. And for example, our, our main ingredient that we use is Redensil and there's, they have patented technology in their formulation, their molecules are their, uh, the different ingredients they use. Um, I think we have several products that have patents around the ingredients. There's also, uh, you know, we also, you're talking about goodwill by the sounds of it, not just patents, but you have copyrights and trademarks and things like this. So in developing a product like this, we, we can, the way we decided to go to market is we've put into formulation a handful of ingredients that have their own trials and their own efficacy that are developed, manufactured by very well-known, reputable ingredient chemical suppliers globally, right? They've done the homework. They, you know, for example, we had a supplier out of, out of Barcelona that was um, providing the main ingredient on our, on Paris's skincare line. I mean, these guys had years of research on uh, ingredients. And one of them, even the, the four scientists that discovered this one enzyme years ago, won a Nobel prize on it. Right. So, I mean, we were, we we're using ingredients that have this patent uh, protection from other ingredient manufacturers. We don't, our lab, we don't invent like we don't invent ingredients, but what we can do is we build these formulas and we can create formulas of multiple ingredients and work to get some kind of protection on that. And that varies. You can, there's, there's certain ways you can do that. One of the things we focus on is trademark. You know, we, we, we have a, say a formulation of a, an ingredient profile or what, like what I would call a matrix and we can put a trademark on that. But at the end of the day, the reality is if you walk down a, 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 sorry, a line in a drugstore and you see minoxidil right below it, you'll see the drugstore's brand of it that essentially just has minoxidil in it because the supplier of that uh, sells their ingredient to Rogaine and they also sell it to, or they whoever manufactures for that drugstore buys that same ingredient. So for us, it, it, you know, you can get wrapped up in a lot of expense if you, if you first can invent or develop a, an ingredient that, that has efficacy and whatever, and you manufacture, but the, the, process of getting a utility patent is incredibly time consuming and it can run you up quite a bit of investment. So if you're an unfunded startup, you're bootstrapping it, or you have friends and family that have put their trust in you, that can quickly wipe out a lot of your early funding. And again, experiences from my first company, we went down that path. It was a very time consuming, costly process. But in the, in the end, you know, we were granted two patents and, uh, you know, we were able to utilize those patents and selling to OEMs in this space. I guess the very long answer is we do leverage the patented ingredients that are in our products. We, you know, we work with the manufacturers and the suppliers to say, Hey, we want to highlight that this product has Redensil or it has Capixel. We want to talk about your clinical trials and we want to use the term patented capixel or patented redensil, right? So we're, we're just leveraging 
the investment and the work from that. And that's exactly what they're in business to do. So last question on, on patents, because I think it is, it's really cool to think of it from your perspective of coming up with a brand, knowing that there's a couple amazing ingredients out there and trying to like put them together with your own formulation. So when it comes to that, right. Um, and you, you're coming up with the ingredients you want to do, you see that one of them's patented and you're coming up with your own formulation is your conversation with the people who have the patent. Is it, Hey, we want to license your patent or is it, a more collaborative thing where you're able to use it so long as you're able to like provide marketing around their their patent like how, how does that kind of shake out when it comes to actually using those those ingredients in your formulation my answer to that question could be different from you know there could be 10 companies answering that and we all have different answers i don't know the relationships between all the suppliers and the different manufacturing facilities uh, i just know that say a large i don't know if i should can say names but well no these are these are these are global brands uh lucas meyer right ingredient supplier well known i believe they're global they have some pretty amazing products they're in business to develop to continuously search for innovative ingredients innovative uh, compounds that can be extracted from plant sources or you know wherever they de derive most of it and develop these these formulas, these compounds with efficacy, and then turn around and sell those products to a, a lab or a facility. And they absolutely want to work with, you know, that lab to have their ingredient included in whatever their clients are trying to put together. And for me, um, you know, it's the, the conversation isn't around, it isn't, it's not directly with the manufacturer and saying, Hey, I want to, uh, I want to use your patent and say that it's, you know, that that's uh, a collaboration between our companies. It's more like you just have to sign the necessary legal documents to even utilize their clinical trials in your marketing. So you'd have to make those arrangements firsthand to say, we're using your, through our lab, we've decided to put your ingredient into one of our formulations. And now what, what paperwork do we need to have in order so that we can say that, the main ingredient this has been proven to do this and just be above board with those suppliers you know and and not and probably not all you know startups do that it's just from my experience with my my past businesses you know get it done in the beginning just do it get it done and and then as you you know as you grow and develop you aren't blindsided you know that you didn't you know, do all your homework before you do it. But, but again, for me, my experience with patents and trademarks and coming out of that, you know, having that experience with my first company and actually raising money on the patent, I'm very sensitive to IP, intellectual property. I'm very, you know, that's a very important thing for me is to, to have those protections in place. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's good, but it's good business. You, you should have that protection, especially, I mean, that's, that's your, you know, that's your creative, collateral that's you know if you sit down and you spend all this time coming up with a logo and then you know a trade a trademark and a, a design around it and you have certain service marks or word marks you like to use you, know, you have to protect that because there are countless people out there that'll just they'll just knock you off i mean you go on amazon you can see it yeah of course of course and i guess the yeah the reason i was curious about it is just from the perspective of if you're going to launch a, a, a company, right? And then you start looking up, oh, I want to use this ingredient, this ingredient, this ingredient. And then the next thing you know, you start seeing all these patents and it just maybe for a first time entrepreneur who's like looking to build a product in the wellness space, supplement space, skincare space, 
whatever it may be. It could be really daunting if they're trying to create their own proprietary formulation and serve up a specific, you know, marketing uh, message along with that and then be like, oh, wait a minute, maybe there's there are protections around these. But I do think your point about trying to figure out what get it done sooner rather than later is really important because as, as a, you know, as a founder, you don't want your business to be growing with a massive liability, um, you know? Right. And again, with that, with that idea, the, the way that you just said that if you were sitting there and you were looking up ingredients, you wanted, you see that there's patents, the process of getting that into your formula or even developing your prototype formula, your, you know, you, you have to, you would have to acquire that from somewhere and, and, and something like a, an ingredient that's patented is most assuredly brokered through a supplier, you know, and there's, there's a handful of them, you know, coming into America here and you, you would have to go somewhere to get that. Um, I don't know about sitting in your bathtub and making it. That's direct knockoff. Like if you said, I know how to make, you know, minoxidil at my house. And then you went and did that. Yeah. That's direct patent infringement <laughs> or, you know, I, I don't, yeah, even, yeah. I don't know if there's still patent on that, but you, you have to go somewhere to get that, uh, those ingredients compounded for you, you know, and, and that, that group or that place you want would most likely get that from an ingredient supplier that is buying from the patent owner, you know, or the, tra the trademark or the tra patent holder rather. Totally. Um, okay. So en enough with patents, let's move on into um, the next steps for when you're building uh, Axel. Sure. What, what, so now that you've got, you understand the ingredients you're using, you've done some of the tests, like what are the next steps in terms of like taking to market, making sure you can get it spun up on Amazon? What were all the things that you were doing um, in taking this product to market? Right. So again, like I said earlier that I had a lot of this pre-existing network, um, you know, so we, and it was, it was the Paris line. It was some other product lines in the space that were, um, they weren't even direct to consumers like this flash sale stuff. Uh, you knew the things that had to be done. You had to have barcodes. You had to be registered to have your, your, you know, your barcodes. You had to get the packaging so that it was, you know, whether or not you're selling in retail, it's, it's pretty good practice to get the packaging so that it's up to, up to snuff your ingredients, your inky or your ingredients are listed out the correct way. And so from, for getting it from, Hey, my, my wife really likes this product and her friends do too to let's send a bunch of this to Amazon and FBA so that someone can order it. There's a, there's a bunch of work that, that, you know, at least we did. And most, I think most successful brands would, would do or want to do or have to do is you have to build the, the message. You have to build the messaging. You have to decide your, your brand position in the market. Are you the cost leader? Are you you know, are you prestige? How are you going to price it? Um, what is your brand position? So after we sat down and decided the best place to put this product, you then build, you go through the arduous task of building all the marketing around it. You want consistency. It has to look like a legitimate product. So we're, you know, we're deciding what the look and feel of the the actual marketing materials are what's on the box what colors are we going to use for our uh the not just the logo but everything to to develop the brand feel is this going to look clinical or should we take it the other way and make it look 
super high end like you'd buy in a Blue Mercury or a Sephora? Like, where are we going to put this? Is it ultimately going to be in a drugstore or, you know, are we going to sell it in Nordstrom? So once you decide all that, you have to build all the collateral, develop the packaging, you get the primary packaging or the bottles or the tubes, and then you have to develop the secondary packaging. What is it? Is it even going to have secondary packaging? Is it going to go in a box? Right. Um, and then it's it's really working to understand your scale as you're working through something like a new product that's a, it's a, whether it's a skincare product or a motorcycle part how do you how do you build initial inventory and what's it look like as you start to grow scale where are the where are the milestones where you say okay instead of putting in 5000 piece orders now that our next order is going to be 30000 pieces or 50000 pieces and when as that happens you obviously have to understand how it affects your margins. Are you ever going to reduce the price? Is there going to be a point in time where you phase out? So, you know, going from that, like you said, initial concept, and I would say like it was a test on Amazon too. Okay, this is no joke. Now we're going to build out some some SKUs and some bigger channels. Um, like when we went to Rite Aid, it was getting all that in a row and understanding that as we start to go to someone like a Rite Aid and say, Hey, we want to work with you. And they come back and say, what's your marketing plan for 2022? And what, you know, what are some of your marketing materials? Can you send us your, your strategy? You should have that in place. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, it, it looks like you are doing it out of a garage. And again, I, you know, I was fortunate enough I am fortunate enough that that I've done this with other products in retail and I have a lot of that already in place. But, you know, there are there are manufacturers and there are there are contract um, companies here uh, that are that have a specialty in helping someone with an idea get to market, you know, that, that have those contacts that can help with those contacts. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess. The last question in regards to that is when you were like, let's talk about that first PO, right? Because I think everything you said about making sure you have everything in place before you take it to scale um, is really important in deciding who's the customer, what what should the packaging be like, what are the marketing materials going to be like. But when you guys were doing this for Axel and you had come up with the formulation and you took your first PO and went to you know Amazon, like how how many units were we talking? How uh, what, did you scale immediately or was it a small sort of production run? Like how'd you approach that first batch? Our very first PO was very large. And, uh, it, if, if Axel was my first product line, I think I would have been, I think I would have had a moment, <laughs> right? Um, but our first PO was very large because the, the customer, I've, I, we worked with the customer before with some other product lines, it was, you know, as, as you're working with customers that put in these larger POs, there's, there, it's a different kind of a negotiation because there's a lot of back and forth on, yeah, we understand what your retail is. We understand what margins you're offering, but with an order like this, you know, if it's a large order, say it was a, I think our first one was 40 or 50,000 units. There's, there's always going to be a negotiation, right? And, we, you know, th that's where we have to do our work in understanding our manufacturing, the manufacturing side of this thing in and out is, okay, if it's going to be a 40,000 unit PO, they want breaks. They might want marketing allowances. 
can what what can we tolerate? And as a startup brand, you know, you want the deal, you want the order, but you you kind of walk this fine line of I don't want to I don't want to turn them off so that they don't work with us. But what am I willing? Is this going to be straight marketing? Are we going to make almost no money just to get product in the hands of consumers, or are we going to run this like we're we're making fifty thousand unit orders every month? So I think. I think if it was my first time doing it, I probably would have just given the stuff away. Right. But we have those relationships and we have that manufacturing experience of, of making hundred thousand unit orders where I say, okay, now I can get on the phone and negotiate with my bottle supplier. And let's say we're going to do this one off run. Can we do it? Do we have enough time to ship the, the bottles here from our supplier by sea or do we have to rush ship it by air and pass that along? So, um, so I, I think that it really depends on not just the stage, but the network that's in place, the experience with producing an order like that, because ultimately, you know, a big order for a fast moving consumer good is it could be a quarter of a million units. What is your what is your manufacturing capacity? How many weeks does that take to do? Is that like a five week turnaround for a quarter of a million units? Um, but, it, it, but we also, you know, we're fortunate because a lot of these customers that put in their initial POs with us, we have rapport with them, you know, we have, so I think in my other line, not Axel in the, in the, in the line with Paris Hilton, when our first order came in, that was a little bit different because that did involve, Hey, we've got this big order and they paid net 60 or net 30 terms. We need to put up some cash. Right. And now we need to figure out not just all that other stuff I said about are there breaks for this customer because it's such a big order. Now it's fine. Great. We've got the PO. There's a commitment here. There's a delivery date. We need to get this thing paid for. We need to get it in production. There's going to be hiccups. It's never smooth. There's going to be a lot of, hey, we need to get this ingredient or this supplier of the 50 ingredients in this one. There's one supplier that's out of these two ingredients. We didn't know it. There's all that stuff, right? So... Well, yeah, and I'd love to maybe now we can take some time and go back to revisiting that story. So why don't we talk a little bit about launching um, Paris's skincare line? What, how did that go? What were the experiences and what was it like working with, you know, a celebrity talent at, at that scale to, to come up with their own line? Well, first, working with working with Paris was great. I, I don't know. I'm not too big into social media. I don't I, I know some of the you know some of the people that are influencers and celebrities everybody knows paris but i don't i don't i never haven't had an opinion of her i just knew who she was that was my generation right growing up um but to work with she's i would say it was fantastic she's nothing like i would have expected right she had a very strong business mind and uh you know the idea of launching a product line with a celebrity was exciting because that was the the general the general thought was you get this celebrity you get this influencer and all they have to do is make one or two posts and you're off to the races right the reality that and this was this was we're talking 2016 or 2017 it doesn't quite work like that um you know i think a lot of people can get excited about that concept and maybe there are unicorns where that does go that way, which is great. I think that's phenomenal, but that can create its own challenges too, right? Launching it, launching a product line with a celebrity is, it's just exciting because you can immediately get a 
an interested consumer. There's instant um, recognition of your brand because you're tying it to, and someone like Paris, I think you said it earlier, she's, she did a lot of things first. And being a celebrity that wanted her own skincare line, she, yeah, she, she was one of the first and the way she wanted to do it was different. I think than most celebrities, she wanted to own it. So, you know, it, the, the getting a phone call with a uh, distributor was worlds easier than I think most startups with a no-name brand. You pick up the phone and want to talk to Macy's and say that you, you, your Paris Hilton skincare line, they'll take your call. It's great. You can get the attention of someone like a buyer. Um, you know, so there's, there's all sorts of benefits to aligning a product line with a celebrity. The, the challenges again are, you know, I, th I think for the most part, you still have to put in the work. It's, it isn't post about it and sell millions of units. It's, it's, you, it's like using turbo or actually nitrous oxide. I don't think people use it anymore. It's like nitrous on a car. You still have to be, you know, you're still running down the road with your foot to the floor, trying to get as much traction as possible. I think a celebrity tied to a line is like nitrous. It just supercharges it. You can reach further to people. You can gain interest from someone, you know, someone hearing the name Axel right now doesn't mean anything to them. You know, it's just, it's just this brand. They may or may not have a hair problem when they see it doesn't, may not even resonate. But if you see a product and then you see a celebrity's name, all of a sudden, you know, most people would say, okay, this is interesting. It supercharges in a way like that. It also provides a huge platform. So I think at the time, I think she had, Paris had six or 7 million followers, I think on Instagram alone, something like this. So theoretically, I don't know how the algorithm worked on Instagram at the time, but theoretically she can post, Hey, I'm launching my line and a, a large portion of that, her followers and a ton of people can see that without having to spend, you know, half a million dollars on ads. So that's great. And then, like I said, talking to distributors, retailers, yeah, you can, you can sit and take meetings with, you know, Rina Sente. We did a launch in Italy with one of the premier luxury retailers, Rina Sente, La Rina Sente, and they, they listen, you know, but they, but, but it's like, like I was saying, I think there are unicorns out there. You hear stories about it, you know, an influencer comes up with a, a lip gloss line and she posts about it five times. And all of a sudden she's got a $200 million brand. That's great. I, but I, I do think that those things are not as, it's not as common. There's more to the recipe to make something like that happen. I think there's, there's more that has to be there. Well, yeah. And I think even in our age as more and more of the brands pop up, that means more and more competition. And, you know, back when you guys were doing it and you could pick up the phone, the celebrity is doing a skincare line. Okay. Yeah. We want to talk. Whereas now I'm, you know, you've got all sorts of competition and they might be saying, well, yeah, we already stock, you know, 20 different celeb skincare line. Like, do we really need another one? Um, so I think that's why yeah. market timing when you're, when you're doing this kind of stuff is so important, but I think there are definitely universal lessons when partnering with anyone, right? In the, in this case, you guys were bringing the manufacturing and the formulation and, and know how operational know-how. And she was bringing the, uh, you know, the digital distribution and brand and marketing. So when you guys were putting this deal together, like what did, what did it look like from a deal perspective for you guys? And 
Um, you know, who, who were the other players involved? Were there managers involved? Were there um, other parties involved? What would, how did it all shake out? Yeah, and that's, that is another part of the challenge. You know, like I said, working with Paris was, uh, it was great. She's, she said she's, she's got a very strong business sense and she knows what she wants. And she's very, very shrewd about how she likes to get things done and it's good. Uh, but there are things, you know, there are other parties that come along with that, especially when you get into, you know, bigger influencers or bigger celebrities. And that's the challenge developing a working relationship in a, a business structure that satisfies everybody. You have to take into consideration, maybe not a lot of celebrities understand the difference between royalties and owning, you know, a business, maybe a business manager's never done a deal where there's a equity in a company. Maybe they're only used to royalty checks, you know, I think like in any business, the most important thing is to work all that stuff out ahead of time. There's countless amazing examples of people that get together with their great ideas and then the, the entity blows up and then they have to circle back because they're at each other's throat trying to figure out why they didn't structure it right. And I think there's even movies about that. But there are challenges and they and the more people you get involved, it, it can become quite a task to get together a structure that, that does work for us. You know, like I said, we were fortunate, but there were challenges like, like anything with working with um, business managers and, you know, legal team. I think ultimately, like I said, Paris's understanding of what she wanted out of it was different than most celebrities or, or influencers not not just want but even understand she got it she understood you know yes i want to be an owner this is something that requires going to require capital a lot of capital it's going to require um, time and this is a different deal than getting a check every quarter or every year saying okay you know pay pay me but the manager gets their cut because if, if you think about it how do you you know how do you bring a manager in if it's not royalties if it's equity that's another challenge right and i think that overall it was just a good experience for me because i you know living here in california and la specifically if you if you start to get a little bit of recognition because you can make products like skincare and hair care and color cosmetics you do get approached you know by influencers and celebrities so understanding the challenges right out the gate can save a lot of time I think ultimately, you know, for us, I don't know, to be to be fully honest, I don't know how the uh, the deal would have gone further past the pandemic. But it is unfortunately one of those brands that, you know, we we were affected heavily by the pandemic. You know, we were we were heavily invested in Korea and that was, you know, one of the first um, moments for us was in February or March when they shut down okay, now we've got a problem because we're very heavily invested in a launch we were working on. Actually, I think we just came back from a, a launch out there in South Korea. Now we were working through the product, the supply side. We worked through the KFDA and all that. So, but again, you learn a lot from it. And it, it's just one of those things that said, for me, I, I much rather keep things simple. You know, I think keeping it simple is 
better, at least for me, because everybody, you know, everybody does have a different take or a different view. It's just you want to make sure that the people you're you're talking to or the the managers or the attorneys or whatever, they're they're all they all have, if not the same, a similar understanding or grasp on the different ways you can structure an entity or a deal rather. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's super important. And I know when we're chatting offline about this, like I've had experience working with, um, you know, to think about building products with different influencers, but there's so many, there's so many considerations that need to be met that maybe an influencer who's really good at like the branding and the marketing and captivating their community audience don't even understand, right? Like if we're building a technical, imagine we're building an app for them or taking a product to market, like we don't want to end up in a situation where we invest a whole bunch of time and money to build an entire product and then you know, the, either the manager or the influencer, they get cold feet. So it's like, how do you really truly align incentives? So, um, you know, like you said, we can approach it. So we're all the, on the same team here and it's, a, it, we're, we're partnering because this is a team and sh she knows what the, the, the deal is going to be upfront as opposed to putting yourself as an operator in a really compromising and difficult position. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then, you know, you have to take your risks too. And I think in my early days, uh, my first company, I wasn't very risk averse. My, when I say I, my, myself and my brother, we weren't really risk averse. You have an investor waving an investment check, talking about equity. It's like, yeah, off to the races. As you get older and I think there's more critical mass in your personal life, you have to really start considering that. Cause like you said, you could put up a ton of investment into a, into a brand line for a celebrity and that celebrity, something could happen. I mean, it's another human being, anything can happen you know, they can get in trouble. They can say something. I think everybody knows they can say something wrong. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're sitting on two years worth of a project that you've dumped a ton of money into or time and you could be dead in the water. <laughs> so it's, yeah, no, it's, it's so important to think about because also, you know, especially in the world of influencer and celebrity, these people have like tons of opportunity. It's like ADD on steroids, right? Like there's, they, they have like shows they're working on or this project or this collaboration. And you don't want to ever put yourself in a position where your outcome is tied to like them or a manager's whim. And like, you have something you've been cooking up for months and months and they're like, Oh, actually we're just going to go with this or that. So I just think for any entrepreneur thinks like, Oh, it's really easy. Let me, I'm just, gonna you know partner with a celebrity for distribution and then we're gonna be all all good like i, I do think even from a, a risk point of view it's just something that you want to be wary of and understand where their priorities uh lie as well absolutely yeah and, and be you know it's like one of those things be prepared one of my first my very first investor you know in the back in new york my very first investor said to me said to give me a lot of good advice one of the first things he said to me was you have to have an iron stomach the the idea of sitting down with a new relationship or you know someone maybe you've known for a while that's a celebrity or an influencer but sitting at a table with someone before you engage into a business uh, like a business together or some kind of a venture having those tough discussions right away that even though it's awkward for most people or, or it's, it just seems really uncomfortable it is so critical to get that stuff out before, like you said, you spend months and months, ton of time, money, and, and all sorts of putting putting your other interests on hold. I mean, that's stuff you can't get back. 
have those really difficult conversations right from the get-go and then have a good attorney <laughs> or good contracts, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay, so moving forward beyond that, uh, you know, I just kind of wanted to talk about now that you, you've done Axel, you, you got it going, you're able to prove demand on Amazon and selling to Rite Aid and some other um, big, big locations. What's the, what's the growth phase of the business look like for you guys? What's on your roadmap? And, um, you know, what are some of the next big challenges that you want to tackle with Axel? The 2023 is, is going to be a, a pretty big year for us. You know, like you said, Amazon's been a good channel for us. Not my favorite, but it's necessary for a lot of reasons. Um, we're very heavily involved in PR, so you, you need that, right? Rite Aid, uh, we're looking to further our relationship with Rite Aid and, and do some testing in store, some flagships, and possibly working with some other drugstores domestically. Our, our big focus this year is working to take it into the next market that I have m more uh, experience with, and that's China. And that every everybody says that. Every anybody that knows anything about numbers will say, yeah, everybody wants to get into China. That that's that's how you supercharge. But but the reality is, this product is actually pretty well positioned and suited for the Chinese market. It just is. Half uh, half of my marketing team last year, two years ago, um, you know, from China, told me right away, like this is a very a uh, big problem in China and a lot of people talk about it. It's a little different here than in America. It's not it's not such a taboo discussion where women here don't typically like to talk about their hair loss with even with their women friends. So but it, my understanding through them is in China that's actually something that is it's pretty common discussion, right? So in 2023 we'll be spending a lot of time really building our national distribution through our, our direct-to-consumer channel is still very important, but we'll be working and leaning a lot on Rite Aid. We have a new relationship with Full Beauty Brands. It's a parent company over several publications. Um, we'll be working with them. Um, we have some other great relationships that we're putting together with um, with other, potentially with other drug uh, drugstore chains. But it's really, you know, for domestic, it's really developing the drug retail channel. We have a relationship. We have a distributor in the UK. They have some pretty aggressive marketing plans for the year going into their drug, uh, drug stores. Um, I think they have two they're working with right now. So we're developing our Mar 2023 marketing plan in conjunction with them. So they manage our UK DTC site, axel.co.uk. But it's all the same. Like whenever we make web modifications or changes, we we work with them and they, they make their changes. So. We'll be developing that market over in the UK, but ultimately it's it's gaining the the traction domestically and gaining the uh, you know the the brand recognition to ultimately start developing how we go into China and possibly Korea because again these products were developed with that in mind. Uh, like I said, I didn't I didn't really know that it could be a a pretty popular product there, but after hearing from our marketing team that, that it is in fact a pretty big problem and a pretty big space for it, luckily for us, we developed it so it could be sold into China from the get-go. We also have some other products that are we'll be exploring in 2023 and getting more traction. We work with Ipsy and BoxyCharm, so we'll be working with them to get some more traction on some of our other SKUs. We have a 
eyebrow serum for eye, for like overplucked eyebrows and repair. And we have an eyelash serum. So we're working with Ipsy because that's a, a little bit of a different target demographic, right? It's it's a product that you can use from the get-go, 18, 18 and older, we say. So, you know, if you if you use fake eyelashes or whatever, you know, it's a, like a repair for that. So this is, so 2023 is really developing the brand, our core consumer, our target consumer to, to help to, to gain some market share so that it's like it, when someone says, hey, what do you use for your hair loss? I can think of two brands off the top of my head. No pun intended. I can think of two brands that I would go to. We want to start to become one of those other brands when a woman asks, what, you know, what do you use for your, your thinning hair, postpartum hair loss? And then ultimately the, 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 the long goal is, is like I said, you, you really need that domestic visibility and brand recognition to really then have success in going into China or Korea, you know, and into those markets. You know, that's super exciting. I think you guys have carved out a really strong niche and, um, you know, I think it's something that everyone deals with hair loss, especially on, I mean, it's something that I, I can relate to, uh, you know, having, gone through that and started using some products. And then I think on the female side, you're, you're right. Like when you say it, I like, I don't, female products don't really come to mind. So being able to go after that niche and build a product around it, I think that's, it's awesome. And the traction that you guys have so far is really exciting. So we're pumped to keep up with you guys as you keep growing. And then for our listeners, where can they connect with you guys and the brand as well? Are you on Twitter? If you could just shout out your socials. Ooh, I hope I remember them. Yes, we're, so we we're very active on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, our Instagram is it's Axel underscore Hair, and our Facebook is just facebook.com slash Axel. Uh, and we do have our our direct to consumer site, which is just Axel.com. A C T S Y L. Awesome. And, and what about you? Are you are are you, where where do you connect with people? Are you on LinkedIn, Twitter, anything like that? Email. I am on LinkedIn. Okay. Yep, I am on LinkedIn and yeah, I do get in the past, you know, I've gotten some questions about, you know, how you get into import export, but I always like having the conversations because like I said, I, I feel like I've jammed a lot of experience in manufacturing, not just domestic into a very short amount of time, but primarily LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the pod and we can't wait to see you guys keep growing and expanding into uh more, mar- more locations in the U.S. and more markets abroad. Very good. I appreciate you having me on today, Blaine. Thank you so much. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show, and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.